Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Let it illuminate, let it set free. Uh, Lord, anoint every word that is spoken. Let there be none of man and all of you, Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, we are coming towards the end of uh, our, uh, our campaign at the Ten Commandments. Remember, it's part of our journey into God's promises. Um, and we arrived at, 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 the, at the place at the foot of Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given to the children of Israel. Uh, we've come to understand as we come to the Eighth, Ninth and Tenth Commandment, and they're all related, as you will find, very related. We've come to understand that the Ten Commandments are really a, a, a set of principles, guidelines, rules that God didn't just give the children of Israel that, but that are very applicable to our lives today. Uh, and we do ourselves a world of good if we imbibe these commandments as part of our value system, uh, because that, these are the, this, this is the foundation of the value system for citizens of the kingdom of God. And we found that they are not some archaic rule that uh, an advanced, technologically advanced and modern world can do away with, we found that they're actually very relevant today, as relevant today as they were uh, when they were given to the children of Israel. So today uh, we're going to talk about the Eighth Commandment and then we will do together the Ninth and Tenth Commandment and then we'll continue on our journey Ninth and tenth commandment will be next week. The eighth commandment. The eighth commandment, Exodus the twentieth chapter and the fifteenth verse, uh, says, "You shall not steal. You shall not steal. Um, you shall not." If we look at the definition of, of stealing, you shall not take another person's property without permission or the legal right to do so, and without intending to return it. If there's a Bible story that graphically portrays uh, this, this commandment, uh, it surely must be the story of Zacchaeus. Now, this is a story that m quite a number of people will know. It's one of those stories you were told in Sunday school and you just never for for forgot, uh, along with David and Goliath, uh, um, Samson, uh, surely was the story of Zacchaeus. And if you turn in Luke's gospel to the Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 1 to 10, the Bible says, In the city of Jericho, there lived a very wealthy man named Zacchaeus, who was the supervisor over all the tax collectors. As Jesus made his way through the city, Zacchaeus was eager to see Jesus. He kept trying to get a look at him, but the crowd around Jesus was massive. Zacchaeus was a very short man and couldn't see over the heads of the people. So he ran on ahead of everyone and climbed up a blossoming fig tree so he could get a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by. When Jesus got to that place, he looked up into the tree, tree and said, Zacchaeus, hurry on down, for, for I am <clears throat> appointed 
to stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus scurried down the tree and came face to face with Jesus. As Jesus left to go with Zacchaeus, many in the crowd complained, look at this, of all the people to have dinner with, he's going to eat in the house of a crook. Zacchaeus joyously welcomed Jesus and was amazed over his gracious visit to his, to his home. Jesus stood in front of, Zacchaeus stood in front of the Lord and said, half of all that I own, I will give to the poor. And Lord, if I have cheated anyone, I promise to pay back four times as much as I stole. Now, in the way that the Bible tells stories, there's so much in that story. And it's, maybe it's a sermon for another day. The choice of Zacchaeus is very important because the tax collectors were some of the most fraudulent and corrupt people in those days. They were, they were used by the Roman government and hated by their own people because they were, they, were, they were used to extort taxes from their own people. They were notoriously corrupt, uh, falsifying receipts, never accounting for, completely for the money that they gave. And they were quite wealthy as a result of that corruption. Now, as Jesus was passing by, there was a massive crowd. Zacchaeus was intrigued. He wanted to see and probably had heard about Jesus. He was Jewish. He must have heard about Jesus. But then because of his stature, he couldn't see over their heads. So he climbs a tree. These are, you know, things for a sermon on another day. But just suffice it to say that when it is your time to have an appointment with Jesus, nothing is going to stop that from happening. Because despite all the crowd, Jesus looks up because it was Zacchaeus' time for an appointment and sees Zacchaeus and tells Zacchaeus he's coming into Zacchaeus' home. It's a sermon for another day as to how the most unlikely, the most unqualified, uh, uh, the love of Christ will reach us wherever we are. And that's your story and my story and will bring us to a place of an encounter with Jesus. And you see, it must be an encounter. And this incidentally is the challenge that the church faces today that there are many in the church who have come because of some mental reasoning, but who have not had an encounter with God. You see, because the nature of an encounter with Jesus must change you. All things pass away as a result of an encounter. You see, religion tries to shield you from an encounter. Religion wants you to get, get into a relationship with a church, a relationship with a man of, or woman of God, or a relationship with a set of rules and regulations. But Jesus wants you to have an encounter with him that leads you to a relationship with him and leads you to a relationship with his father. The spirit of God is deposited in you as a result of that. So when Zacchaeus has that encounter with, with Jesus, there isn't time to go into all the details, something happens in him. There's a change, there's a conversion, a transformation. The result of that change is that he's convicted in your heart. An, an encounter with Jesus and a continuing relationship with Jesus starts with a conviction and continues with a series of convictions until you are formed in the image of God. If you're not getting convicted daily in your walk with God, might I suggest that there is a chance that what you're in is a religious experience, but not an encounter, 
and not a walk with the living Christ. A walk with the living Christ will start with a conviction and will continue with a series of convictions, each one leading you a step closer to the image of, of, of Christ. And as a result of this conviction, he says, you know what, I'm so convicted, half of what I have. This is a man who was greedy and selfish. Suddenly a spirit of generosity comes up upon him. You can't be in a genuine relationship with Christ without a spirit of generosity resting in your heart. It is the nature of God. He is the generous God. He set the example when you encounter him and it is a genuine encounter, not a religious experience, not a religious encounter and not a religious relationship. Then you by, by as a result of that encounter, generosity comes into your heart. Generosity comes into his heart. I'm going to give half of what I have away. This is a man who was used to hoarding, but suddenly he's going to give half of it away. And then he goes on to say, and as a result of this conviction, I will pay back four times as much to the people who I stole from. Now, this just paints the picture of the kingdom of God's attitude towards theft, towards the thief. An encounter makes a thief, turns a thief around and makes him a generous person and not just generous in terms of giving, but then makes him to also want to see if he can restitute, if he can, as much as he can, he can make things better. He can try and remedy, that's the word, the wrong that he has done. And what does Jesus say to him as a result of what he says? And this is important, verses 9 and 10. Jesus says to him, this shows, your actions show, your words show. The thing that you have said you will do shows. He says, this shows that today life has come to you and your household, for you are a true son of Abraham. The son of man has come to seek out and to give life to those who are lost. What is Jesus saying? This is a sign that you have had a genuine encounter with Jesus, the living God. Amen. And you know, the, the, the bane of religion is that it really acts as some sort of anesthetic that makes us think that we can continue with an old lifestyle and yet say we are new creature, creation, new creatures, new cre a new creation that we are born again. You can't do that. It is not genuine because that encounter makes you want to turn away. And if, 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 if the person was selfish, was a thief, was greedy, then that, those traits disappear as a result of the encounter and a continuing relationship with God. Let's be left in no doubt, as the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians, the 6th chapter and the 10th verse, from verse 9 to 6, and it lists a whole group of people who, because of what the Bible says they are involved in, the Bible says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 10 says, thieves will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, you know, once you say that, the, the natural human nature is to think, I'm not really a thief because I'm not a burglar. Um, you know, I, I, haven't, I haven't gone around um, um, neighbors' houses looking for things to nick. Um, I'm not a carjacker, uh, which is really theft with violence, which becomes robbery. 
Um, I haven't violently dispossessed a person of their property, so I'm not a thief. We sometimes forget that uh, a lot of stealing is done as white-collar crime. Um, this is non-violent crime, often committed by businesses, organizations, professionals, people like that. Uh, it, it is still stealing. It is theft. You know, falsifying a document to get something is theft. Uh, taking things from the office. You know, just a paper clip today, 10 paper clips tomorrow, 50 paper clips next week. By the end of the month, a whole box of paper clips, but I'm not a thief. No, it doesn't work like that. Those things are, are, are stealing. Fiddling your taxes. All those things are stealing. And, and God frowns. Doesn't just frown. There are costs and consequences when a person is a thief. And you know, it, 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 it could end there, but it actually doesn't end there. Because yes, we can steal from human beings. But then, worse than that, we can also steal from God. And someone says, how is that possible? Well, the Bible is very clear about that. Malachi, the third chapter. And as soon as you say Malachi, people's, people's all kinds of hackles go, go, go up, you know, all over people. You know, people start to get ready. Malachi, the third chapter, verses eight and nine. This is the Bible speaking, not Aguiruku. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way? Have we robbed you in tithes and offerings? You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Now, God was speaking to the nation of Israel. And he was saying to the nation of Israel, you're a nation of thieves. Not just thieves, you're a nation of robbers at that time. And he was saying of course, you know that a robber is a thief, but that uses violent means to, uh, to achieve his aim of stealing. So it's just an advanced form of, of, of stealing. He says, you're, you're a nation of thieves, this whole nation. You've robbed me. And of course, the people were like, but how did we rob you? And he says, in your tithes and your offerings. You know, a lot of times when we hear the scriptures, the pastor is using it to talk about tithes. But it is more than tithes. It is in your tithes and your offerings that you have robbed me. You have unlawfully taken what is mine by force or threat. That's what God was saying to the nation of Israel. So what did God mean by this? Is it possible for a Christian in the 21st century in London, in the Western world, in Africa, wherever in the world, to, to rob God, to steal from God. What exactly did God mean? Maybe a look back so that we understand the concept, so that we know whether we are robbing God. The concept really was one of ownership. That's what the whole commandment was about, ownership. You shall not steal was the commandment. What does that mean? You can't take what is some other person's. If the possession is it's possessed by someone, owned by someone, and you can't take it without permission. You can't take it illegally and you can't take it by force. So the whole, that whole scripture in Malachi was about ownership. Now, 
The Bible says in Leviticus, the 27th chapter and the 30th verse, all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. What was the Bible saying? Concerning this matter of the tithe, in those days, it is owned by God. So what was God saying to them in Malachi? What, was, what is mine by law? What I said is mine, I own. You have kept for yourself by force. You have refused to give it to me. So you are a thief. In fact, because of the forceful nature with which you have held on to it, you have robbed me. That's what God was saying to the nation. But then he goes on, the Bible helps us understand that God's ownership is not of the tithe alone. His ownership is of the whole. Haggai, the second chapter and the eighth verse. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. Now, of course, a lot of the arguments about tithes and offering has to do with people who say it's the Old Testament. It is the law. We are in a dispensation of grace. I'm kind of amused at that argument because it's, very, it's, a, it's a lovely selective argument as to how we choose the things in the Old Testament that we like. Abraham's blessings are mine. Psalm 91 is in the Old Testament, but in these COVID times, we have recited Psalm 91 like it's some mantra. I'm believing that the more we recite it, hopefully it can keep us safe. It's interesting how the human nature is. We're just selective, but not even, let's go away from the selective. I wanted to bring some revelation to you today. Jesus himself says in Matthew, the fifth chapter and the 17th verse, critical scripture. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. What was Jesus saying? He's saying that the law was given. I am here not to destroy the law that was given to you. I am here to bring fulfillment to that law that was given to you. In fact, he goes on to make a categorical statement in verse 18 where he says, Till heaven and earth passes away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. So, of course, that means that we're saying to ourselves, so what is the fulfillment of every law? Every law must have a fulfillment. And he goes on to give us examples. This is wonderful teaching by Jesus. He said in verse 21, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. That was the law. He says, now I bring a fulfillment of that law. The fulfillment of that law is that you mustn't even be angry with your brother without a, without a cause. You mustn't even use a derogatory term towards your brother. You mustn't even bear malice towards your brother because to do any of those things is to contravene the law of murder. Guess what? The standards have been raised under grace. You, it's not just I can't kill you, I can't shoot you with a gun. It's that I, I can't and I shouldn't use my mouth from a heart of hatred, malice, to a hatred or malice 
to speak a derogatory word against you. That is the standard. Now, he goes on to say, you heard it that it was said of old, verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. That's the law. He says, well, let me tell you the fulfillment of that law. I have come to bring the fulfillment. The standard is higher. It is not just that you can't physically sleep with a married person or you can't as a married person physically engage in a sexual relationship. That was the law of adultery. It is that if you had the thought in your heart, you have committed adultery. How many agree with me? That's a much higher standard. And then he goes on to even talk about marriage. He says, under the law, you were allowed for any reason whatsoever to divorce your, your wife. Just issue a certificate of divorce. That's the end of the marriage. She annoys you because she didn't cook the meal that you wanted. You have warned her every single day. You must cook this food at this temperature and it must be served at 5 p.m. I came back at, at, at 6 p.m. You haven't served the food. Here is a certificate of divorce. Off you go. And that was the law. As long as you issued the certificate of divorce, the marriage was over. But Jesus says the standards have changed. That you get into a marriage, the one condition on which you can dissolve that marriage is that there is sexual immorality. You can't dissolve the marriage because she didn't cook the food at the right temperature and bring it at 5 p.m. That was under the law. Your certificate of divorce that was, that, was, that was allowable under the law is not allowable here for those kind of things except sexual immorality. Now, if he does that for every other part of, of the law, brings fulfillment, your, the question you should ask yourself and I should be asking myself is, so what is the fulfillment he brings for the law of the tithe and the law of the offering? Well, the fulfillment is this, very simple. In the Old Testament, the ownership was 10%. In a New Testament dispensation, the ownership is 100%. He owns everything. So the tithe is like a school teacher. That's what the law is. That is a constant reminder to us that you don't own your finances. It is owned by God. So when we give the tithe, we use it as a platform to forge towards in our journey with God a total submission so that we move from 10% in terms of ownership and that's the token of that ownership to 100% in terms of a generosity of spirit. So when I give my tithe every month and my offerings, I am constantly challenged to take a look at my financial life and determine whether I am still operating at a place where I am saying, God, here is your 20%. I gave you a 10% offering and a 10% tithe. I hope that placates you to a place where I understand that it's flipped in the, in the New Testament under grace. God owns the 100%. He directs me as to what I do with it. And sometimes it is not 10% or 20%. Sometimes it is 70%. 
And sometimes it is so sacrificial, it is 90% and I have to go through a tough month because that month, the owner, as I have given my tithe in acknowledgement of his ownership, has said it's a bit more this month, give some to this orphan, send some to this widow, sow some into this man of God's life, give extra extra to the church. Have you not heard the call that they made? Because he owns it all. Now, when I say I don't even want to submit to the law, it is almost like saying that I don't really care or want to submit to the things that the law says that I agree are good, like not to murder or not to commit adultery, because those things serve as a teacher. They are a platform. But then we are going as New Testament believers into a dimension of grace where, the, where we cannot keep the standards by ourselves. Hence grace, hence the Holy Spirit. I, I, I can't reach a point where I want to buy something and I have the money in my account and I have fulfilled the law by giving tithes and giving a little offering. But God says, no, that money in your account is not for you. It is for that call that you had while watching television. That's where the money is supposed to go. I can't get there myself. But by the Spirit of God, I can get to a place where the ownership becomes God's. And the token for me on that journey to ownership is the tithes and the offerings that I am giving. I, 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 hope, I hope that has made some sense to you. Now, you can also steal from God, not just financially. We can also steal from God when we don't give ourselves to serve him. We are stealing from him. Someone says, how is that the case? First Peter, the first chapter, verses 18 and 19. For you know that your lives were ransomed once and for all from the empty and futile way of life handed down from generation to generation. It was not a ransom payment of silver and gold, which eventually perishes, but the precious blood of Christ, who like a spotless unblemished lamb was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 20 says the same thing. You were God's expensive purchase, paid for with tears of blood. So by all means, then use your body to bring glory to God. So what's the Bible saying? The Bible is saying that you, you, in terms of ownership, you don't own yourself. You have no right to decide how to use yourself. No right, none whatsoever. And this is the clash with a lot of the philosophies of this age, as we will find out. Because you don't own yourself. You were bought a ransom was paid for you. There was a price on my head and your head. And Christ came and paid a, 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 a weighty, weighty amount, his life for you and I. So we are now owned by God. Now, when you're owned by God, when you're owned by someone, you do what the person wants. We'll talk a bit more about that. So when you choose to, in a, almost a rebellious sense, not submit yourself to, in obedience to serve God, to be used by God, you qualify as a thief because you are stealing what is not yours. Your life is not yours. My life is not mine. It is owned by God. The Bible says that 
It was paid for with tears of blood. It's a heavy price. And when we choose to go our own way, we are too busy with our lives. We can't serve God in any way. We don't allow God to use us in any way. We are stealing from God because we don't own our lives. And you know, Paul puts it in another way in, in, with regards to stealing from God in that way. He says in a sense that it means that we don't understand mercy. Because you see, if you understand mercy, then you will understand exactly the price that was paid, know that that price was an act of mercy, and you will just give yourself to be used by God. You know, there, there's too much of an independent spirit that exists in the world today. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit about that towards the end. You know what Paul says in Romans the 12th chapter and the first verse, and I'm reading the Amplified Classic because it amplifies it. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brethren, and then he goes on, and this is like an emphasis, and beg of you. So he says, guys, I appeal to you. In fact, guys, I am begging you. He says, in view of all the mercies of God, as a result of all the mercies of God, when you think about God's mercies towards you, when you pause and realize where you would have been without God, when you appreciate the awesome price, the, the, the price that were the tears of blood that was paid so that you could be ransomed from the kingdom of darkness, when you understand these things, when you understand daily the mercies that are new in your life. I love that song, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's your story. That's my story. His mercies never come to an end. Every morning we receive new mercies. Do you know that it is the mercy of God that you slept and woke up in the morning? It is not because you're, you're, you're perfect. It is just the mercy of God. So, 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 so what, what, what was Paul saying? When you think about the mercies of God, he says, you make a decisive, and I love that word, decisive. It is a settled matter. Dedication of your bodies presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice to God. You just give yourself to God. Why do some people go all out for God? Why are some people turned fanatical for God? Why do you think some people don't stop working, serving God, giving themselves to God, sacrificing whatever God would do? Why do you think some people don't know the boundaries in relation to giving themselves to God? It's because those people, they truly understand that they are owned by God. They understand the mercies of God. They give themselves, the Bible says, a living sacrifice. The picture is like putting yourself on, a, on an altar and burning yourself to God. You know, that's the picture that it paints. A holy, devoted, consecrated one, well-pleasing to God. And then the Bible says, and this is critical, the Bible says, which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. What's the Bible say? Any reasonable man who is presented with the facts will join you and conclude that for this thing you've told me that God has done in your life, the only thing left is to give yourself to God completely. 
Paul says it's not a it's not a, it's not any spooky thing. He says a reasonable, rational, intelligent person. So the people who don't, the Bible is saying, are very unreasonable, very irrational, and not very intelligent. Because basic application of intelligence to look at your life will say to you that for this life, what God has done, there is nothing left but to give myself completely to God. Amen. You see, because the truth is that we are called to be countercultural. That is the truth. This life I've described, this kind of life that is not just not stealing, not being greedy and selfish, but being generous, is a countercultural life to the culture of today. You know, the Bible says in, in 2 Timothy, the third chapter and the first verse, it says, but we know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. The Passion Translation says it more, more clearer in my reckoning. It says, but you need to be aware that in the final days, the culture of society will become extremely fierce. And that is where we find ourselves. That's why these 10 commandments are critical for us to apply to our lives today. The culture of society is extremely fierce. It encourages theft. It encourages people to be greedy, to want for themselves. He goes on to say in verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves. And this is the root cause of theft, where men are lovers of themselves. They become selfish, self-absorbed. They become independent from God. And they are one step away from where Satan wants to get them, where they become, where they want to be gods to themselves. And that's the whole basis of the New Age philosophy. You are independent. You're a god. You don't need Jehovah. And it, doesn't, that, doesn't that give you a feeling of deja vu? I've kind of seen that before. And wasn't that what he started with, with Adam and Eve? Why don't you be like God? Whereas we should be saying, we, we, don't, we are like God in his image, and his likeness, but we are God's possession. He owns us. We don't want to be so independent that we don't need God. But once you become a lover of yourself, you will invariably steal because you are, you, the, being a lover of yourself induces selfishness, induces a, being self-absorbed, a self-centeredness that leads to an independence from God and eventually leads to a person starting to feel that they are the God of their own life. And so I end on this note, as I end now. I'm, I'm increasingly understanding that slavery is good. Somebody says, what's he saying? Believe me, slavery is a good thing. The question is really, who am I a slave to? The truth is that nature does abhors a vacuum. In this life, you will be a slave to someone or something. That's how life is. So what do we want? We want to move from slavery to slavery. I guess that's what the Bible says in Romans, the sixth chapter, verses 20 to 22. It says, when you were slaves to sin, 
you were free from the obligation to do right. You had no choice. You couldn't. Nobody, nobody expected you to do right because you were a slave. A slave has, you know, a slave does what the master wants. He says, and what was the result? You're now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you're free from the power of sin. Why are you free from the power of sin? Why am I free from the power of sin? Because a ransom, a price has been paid. We are now owned by somebody else. We are owned by God. You are free from the power of sin and have become slaves to God. There's nothing wrong with the term slavery. It's just who are you a slave to? I am very proud to be a slave to God. That's good slavery. He says, now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in, et in eternal life. What do we want to be? Believe me, I want to be a good slave to God. I want him to own me, own everything that I, that I have, that he has blessed me with. Not, I don't own it, own my money own my entire life, own all my resources. What do we want? We want him to be in control of our lives. That's what slavery is. What do we want? We want to declare constantly that he is the legal, we are the legal property of God. And guess what? That's our defense against Satan. You can't touch me because I am legally owned by God. I am legally owned as a result of his word and my actions daily confirm God's ownership of my life. And when we now allow God to own us, we kill off from the roots the self selfishness, self-centeredness, being self-absorbed, that is the root cause of theft. And then we are... We allow, as we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God, dedicate our faculties, every part of us to the Spirit of God. We allow God to control us so we can obey not just the law, but then we can also obey what he asks us to do in a season of grace that we cannot do on our own. How do I stop myself from having a picture in my mind or looking at another woman in an untoward way. It's a bit challenging in 21st century London, especially in the summer. But by the Spirit of God, it is possible for me to achieve that level of holiness. How do I make sure I don't say a derogatory word um, uh, about my brother? I don't say a slanderous word about my brother. I don't speak in anger. I can't do it. So, but this higher dimension that is required of the commandment that I shouldn't murder, I can do it by the Spirit of God. How do I make sure that I give not just a tithe, but that I give more than a tithe and, 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 more, and more offerings, not just to the church, but to all the many places that God says I should sow to advance his kingdom. How do I do that when there are competing demands? I do that because I, by the Spirit of God, because I can't do it in my own strength. Hallelujah. So, welcome to a wonderful world of slavery. It's the best place to be a slave, to be God's slave. God bless you. Let's bow our heads. And so I want to make a call to ask anyone who would like to be a slave. You want to be a slave. You want to be owned by God. 
You want him to stamp on your life God's property. You want to declare to any principality or power that I am legally God's and you have for you to come into my life your actions are illegal and the consequences will be severe. You want to give your life to Jesus. You want to accept God as your father. Well, if you want to do any of those things, why don't you just say this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, today I willingly give my life to you. In doing so, I ask that you enslave me Take complete control of everything in my life. Help me by, the, by grace and by your spirit to do what is pleasing to you, to live a life that is pleasing to you, Heavenly Father. Today I declare that I'm not just a child of yours. I have become today a slave of yours, almighty and everlasting God. And thank you for the wonderful benefits of this form of slavery. I receive it all into my life. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Praise God. Hallelujah.